0: Before before we get into my notes, you give me your notes. What do you guys know about the book of James? I say James, you say what? Ecclesiastes of the New Testament. Okay, Helen says Ecclesiastes of the New Testament. Why? What is the gestalt of Ecclesiastes that James is picking up? Wisdom. So wisdom literature, okay? So there is an old, a section of the Old Testament. I'm going to let you all simmer down. There's a section of the Old Testament. that's five books long. It's known as the wisdom literature. It's the Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and what am I missing? Job, um, that comprises this section. And you're saying that James functions similar to the wisdom literature. I think that is true. It is true. We'll, we'll see a little bit of the particulars of that in a minute. John? James is one of the uh, Jesus' Bible Yes, James is, and we'll talk about that, because who James is, is complicated. We'll talk about that. I actually have some notes on there for you. So James is wisdom literature, essentially. It's written by one of Jesus' brothers. Catherine? Practical exhortation. Good. Very, he kind of jumps right in. You read James, as soon as Paul will sometimes have these flowery beginnings, except in Galatians, he just jumps right in. But in, in James, it's like, boom, and he just, just goes and is very exhortational. It's if you read it through, you're gonna be like, Ah, is James in a little bit of a bad mood? You might wonder, right? He's terse. He's very direct. He's not, there's not a lot of black. And, I mean, not a lot of gray with him. He's just very, unk, 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 very terse. Um, but he explicitly affirms the value of mercy, compassion. So there's this thing that takes the edge off. But it is a very particular kind of letter. That's great. A couple other things, James. Things that strike you. Yes, Gina? Almost got kicked out. Almost got kicked out. This is true. Um, so James, when, they, when the uh, New Testament canon was being, you know, kind of consolidated, and that's a whole story of how that comes about, people had a little bit, James, the book of James was a little bit under suspicion, and it didn't end there. In fact, I've got a quote in here from Martin Luther who called it a straw epistle. I don't know how Martin Luther and James get along in heaven, but... Luther was, uh, Luther, Luther was not terribly fond of this. We'll talk a little bit about that. So good. Okay. One or two more quick observations. Yeah, David. Okay. Faith without works is dead. Now, this is something that James is affirming that is in God's word, that is true. But that is why Luther didn't like it. And we're going to have to talk about the most controversial passage in James. Okay. Very good. One more. Are you sitting on? Can we get going? What is it? Tongue. Tongue, major theme. Tongue, which connects back to the wisdom literature stuff. So wisdom. wisdom. Okay, again, more wisdom literature. There's a lot of themes on this. So all kinds of good stuff. All right, hang on. Here you go. I don't think you guys got one of these. You might want one. Help yourself. There's like seven copies, actually. All right, so Book of James. Let's talk about who wrote it. There, when we, in the Bible, there James is a very common name. Except just as a, a quick aside, it wasn't even James. His name was like was Jacob, and I have no idea why. His, if you look at it in Greek, his name is Jacobus, Jacobus, y- y- Jacobus. and somehow we turned that into James. It should have been Jacob, but whatever. Okay. But the number of dudes that had that name, this Jacobus name, there's a whole bunch of guys, and it's hard to. You know, you ever been to a Wikipedia page? It's like a disambiguation page. The disambiguation of James is difficult. OK? So here's, here's the candidates. Here's the possibilities. Well, can you tell who are the Jameses that you know of? Okay, son of Alpheus, who is that? Okay, good. So Anna is saying there's Big James and there's Little James. Are you getting this from the chosen or from someplace else? Yeah, because yeah, in the chosen they talk about little James and Big James. Okay, so, uh, so we have James, son of Alpheus. That's important. We'll come to him. Who else? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Okay, so now who is he? I don't know. Some James, Son of Thunder. Okay, so you've got, what is it? He's Big James. Okay, so what you have in, it within, so there's like, Jesus loves everybody, right? And then he's got this like circle of followers. And then he kind of winnows it down. He goes up on a mountain and he picks 12, the 12. Sometimes they're just called the 12, the 12 disciples. But within the 12, do you know there was another subset? Do you know this? They were like, The three that were part of the twelve, which were part of the seventy-two, which are part of everybody else. Who were the three? Peter, Peter, James, and John. Okay, this James is not that James. Okay, when we say Peter, James, and John, the phrase Peter, James, and John, most of the time, Peter, James, and John is talking about Simon Peter and James and John. And which 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 two are brothers? James. James and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. They are called the sons of thunder, which is their nickname, because they're just noisy and, and aggressive, right? And so this James, James, son of thunder, James, son of Zebedee, James, the brother of John, James of the, of the three, is all the same person and is not this guy, okay? Then you've got James, son of Alpheus, or Alpheus, I don't know how you emphasize it. And that guy is one of the 12 as well. So in, among the 12, there were two dudes named James, except neither one of them was named James. They were both really named Jacob, but we just called them James. Okay, so there's two of those. And then there's this guy, and he's a third guy. He's a different guy. I listed for you in this text. I mean, maybe you don't even care. But if you go through, you can, you can, we can kind of figure out who is who and which one wrote which one, generally speaking, although it's a little bit complex. This one, this guy that wrote this letter is not James, the son of Zebedee the brother of John. It is not James, the disciple. Although some people think it was, and maybe they're right, but generally speaking, we don't think it's James, son of Alphaeus. We think it's a third guy who is James, the brother of Jesus, okay? And if you look here in the text, I'll show you a couple of these key passages. Uh, let's see, if you look at uh, Matthew 13 under James, the Lord's brother, the third, like bottom one, it says, isn't this the carpenter's son? They're talking about Jesus. Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So Jesus has all these brothers, isn't that? And, James, and this guy, James, is one of them, right? The guy that wrote this letter is one of the, one of the brothers of Jesus. Um, the reason that we know that we believe it can't be James, the son of Zebedee, is because he's already dead. If you look at Acts 12, verse 2, up there under, not the author James, son of Zebedee, he had James, the brother of John, right? Son of Zebedee, son of thunder, brother of John, put to death with the sword. That's in Acts twelve two. And then right after that, in Acts twelve seventeen, there's somebody else named James, uh, which is the author of this letter. So it's complicated if you go through it. It may not really matter, but this James is the brother of Jesus, not the disciple, not the other disciple, but it's someone who ends up being a very significant leader in the church. James, the brother of Jesus. Okay. More than you care about. Is that sufficient? Oh, they have another brother. Who is the brother of Jesus and the brother of James and the author of Scripture? You know who that is? His name is mentioned right here in Matthew 13. He says, "So here's your here's your menu." Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Judas, Judas right? Joe Ju- Jude. And for some reason, I can't imagine why he didn't seem to go by Judas later in life. Right? Um, it's like naming your son like Adolf. Like, what are you going to do? Like, now it's just like you got to find a nickname, right? So Jude, the author of the letter of Jude, is the brother of James, is the brother of Jesus. That's all all in the family. And that's the guy that writes this letter. Okay? Good enough? All right, second thing to know, it's early, early, early. This is the earliest letter in the New Testament. It's the earliest book in the New Testament. And that kind of shows because it is not very developed. And that's not, that's not a criticism of it. It's just very raw, right? He just, it, doesn't, it doesn't reflect... Three decades of the church having conversations about things, it's largely James recalling the things that he heard Jesus say and then just pushing him out there. Who is his audience? Do you know who is James writing to?:. Church, Jesus, the okay, tr- Christians who weren't walking the walk. OK, that's a good answer. And what did I hear over here? Yes. Who's you writing to? He actually makes it explicit.) <laughs> 12 tribes. What does that mean? Jewish. To the Jewish Christians. Okay? Why would this letter be particularly to Jewish Christians rather than Gentile Christians? Think of your church history. Is this letter early or late? What was the church like when it was early? It was Jewish, right? It's written to a Jewish audience because the audience was Jewish, right? James is very early in the game. And so this whole crazy controversy of all these Gentiles that start coming into the party, that takes a little time to develop. And James is very early in the story. So it has a Jewish feel because the community is like full of Jewish people. Of course it is. What else is it going to be, right? First DFP, then i come over here to Bill. James. Wait, wait, hang on. First DFP. James is also the head of the church in Jerusalem, which was like Jewish stronghold. Absolutely. We're going to see that by Acts 15. James, even if I probably have some of these, yeah, like in Acts 15, 13, when they finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. That's all the stuff that's happening. We went to the next, next day, Paul and the rest went to see James, and the elders were present. Um, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the leader of the Jewish home base. And so that's, that's kind of, and he's Jewish. It's just natural, normal. He's writing to a Jewish audience early in the church. Bill? Wasn't James also the one that passed the head of the church in Jerusalem to welcome the in uh, that controversy came up? Yeah, so when it comes in, so the, there's this big thing that happens in Acts 15 where they, the Council of Jerusalem, where they are, uh, as, they, as they jump into this thing, they begin to think like, wait, there's Gentiles coming in. What do we do about that? And they have this big meeting like, I don't know, do we let them in? Do we circumcise them? Do we make them follow the Jewish law? And so James is the leader of the church as that whole, not even, maybe it's a controversy, but as that whole question is being worked out, that's the same guy that writes this letter. Okay, so far so good? All right, so as he does it, James has a couple of things that I think are, are very interesting to him that might be interesting to us as we go through it. First of all, per, one of his favorite terms, I just listed this because it's not obvious in English, but one of his favorite terms is the idea of perfection or completeness or the desired end. You might know the word telos, like a teleological argument is about the end for which something is made. And Paul uses this, or sorry, James uses this word, this uh, I'm, I don't speak Greek, so telos, I don't know, Harrison, how do you say that? Telos. Teleos, is that right? Okay, so teleos, but it it gets translated. Look at all the ways it gets translated. Finish, mature, perfect, perfect, keep, perfect, finally. That's all the same Greek root. And what James is trying to say is, hey man, let's finish the game. Let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's accomplish our purpose. Let's be what he made us to be. It just permeates the letter. James is very interested in getting things right. If you speak Myers-Briggs, James, is is he a J or a P? He's a J. He's like, just do what you said you would do. Like, why are we having this conversation, right? He's a J. He wants to get the thing done, right? So when you when you read through James and you have you have you get a sense of he's like, he's not so interested in the process. He's like a destination guy. Like, just do it. That's James, okay? But that really troubled some people because the the end of our faith. Hear this: the end of our faith, the goal to which this whole thing is driving is that we're obedient people. Jesus did not save us so that we could continue to live riotous lives. He saved us and called us to a holy life. And so James kinda leapfrogs over the process be like, hey, 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 tighten up. Like, just get it right. Do what we're supposed to do. Jesus didn't go through all this so that we could live reckless lives. Like, do better. And guys like Martin Luther are like, whoa, time out, time out, time out, time out. What? Right, And so the controversy in James is contained in, his, in his, his statements about faith. So take a look at this. This is Luther. This is so interesting. Luther says, uh, in a word, John's gospel and his first epistle and Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and also Peter's first epistle, are the books that show you Christ. And they teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, listen to this, James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to those others, for it has, and here's the the tight language, nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Strong, right? Okay, now, in fact, it's not quite as strong as it appears to us, although it's pretty strong. Luther is, uh, you need one, bro? You got a whole pile. Uh, does anybody else still need a, need a copy? There's a bunch of things you might want to see. If so, we can, we can just come up and grab one if you'd like one. Um, Luther believed that it should be in the canon. He just had a very clear two-tier sense. There's like the top shelf books and the bottom shelf books. And yeah, it's on the shelf, but it's not a top shelf book. Okay? You can agree or disagree with Luther on that. I would disagree with Luther on that, but I really appreciate... The fight that he is in—you got to think about Luther's historical moment, where he is just fighting for the notion that we're saved by faith and not by works. Okay, what he was troubled by is this central passage here, and I just—I just excerpted it, but it's really much of chapter two, where James says, "What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him?" In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. (laughs) And thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Okay, so all you good Reformed people... How do you how, let's let's give let's give Luther a benefit of the doubt here, and let's understand how do we make sense of what James says, Holy Scripture, James chapter two, all these passages and mother, others that I just didn't fit in here, comparing that to basically what Paul is going to say in Romans, that we are saved by faith alone. Which is it? Are we justified by faith? Or are we justified by faith plus works? Give that a minute, okay? In fact, I can give you guys this is a big enough thing. I want you guys to take two minutes at your tables and just try to hash it out. How have you heard this? How have you processed this? And then we'll kind of hear some thoughts and we'll try to, if we have time, we'll try to give that a few minutes, okay? What is the deal? Are we saved by faith alone? Are we justified by faith plus works? How does it work? All right, is that enough time to get your juices flowing? Come on in. So here's what I want you to think about, or here's how I'd lo- what I'd love to hear. First of all, if James and Paul were in a cage match, who would win? And number two, Is there even a cage match happening, okay? Are they disagreeing? Is there, do we we need to, is there there a tension to resolve or is there something, or a complexity to understand here? How do you guys take this? Okay, first, Zach. You gotta get to the essence. Gotta get to the essence? The essence. Okay, how so? We've only got
1: these uh,
0: selected passages from James. What's the context? Okay, good. Uh, What's actually going on in the context that make it more? Okay, great. And that's we always want. Anybody ever hands you like a bunch of like Bible verses ripped from their context? You should be you should call them on it. So thank you for that, Zach. Okay. Um, And I think there there is a couple of really really important phrases in James two that I'm not going to share with you quite yet, um, but that I think speak to this. So yes, there's something going on. There's an argument that James is making, and it might not be the same argument that Paul is making in Romans three, for instance. Okay, Virgil. I think Paul does make the argument. In Philippians, and in Galatians, where he says in Philippians, walk we'll out your salvation in fear and trembling. And in Galatians, uh, I think it's Galatians. Shall we go on sinning and yeah. In other words, he's saying that look, if you have faith in Jesus, it should be demonstrated in your life. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so I think you guys probably heard Virgil, but just in case not, or for the tape, James is observing that Paul says things exactly like this over and over again. You have him saying um, that, shall we continue to sin so the grace may increase? By no means, right? James is very interested that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so a proper comparison of Paul and James is going to be is going to be a comparison and not a contrast if we really understand what they're saying. It's a great answer. Yeah, John? In Ephesians chapter two, right after Paul has said we we're saved by grace through faith, uh baptizing ourselves as a gift of the God, not by words, but of boast, He then immediately says we were saved for words, which were prepared to do. Walk in. That's right. Ephesians 2, right? Ephesians two ten, that, that that last kind of haymaker is, for we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's very consistent with what James is saying here in, in James 2. Good. A couple more. Herrick? Even Jesus goes over with Peter, and when he's asking him do you love me, and he's telling him, and he's saying, tend to my Yeah. Like he's instructing him to do works. Yes right okay so james is not out here on some island saying that how we live matters it, it's it just permeates the new testament uh yeah you want to jump on too indy well i was going to say you know when god and his sovereignty helped to breathe all of this life in these altars right Like he knew this holy bible to be read by people for thousands of and thinking about so much of the New Testament is by faith alone, by faith alone. I can see where Luther would have had that struggle in his time. But in our time, we need a book that says, that well, you can't just say that you're a Christian yeah. and, you know, not live that out, right? Because we live in a day and age where, like, lots of people profess to be Christians, but you're not seeing evidence in your life, and they are not willing to make the sacrifices yeah, I think it's great. And so and we could we could even we could frame it, you know, Jesus comes from the Father full of grace and truth. And it we are never allowed to be merely gracious but not truthful, merely truthful but not gracious. It's both. But at different moments, if you're out of balance, if some if one ingredient is missing, then that might need to be added more. And James is clearly seeking to bring a little more of the truth to the party. Although he does say mercy triumphs over judgment. He talks about compassion and mercy. He's not void of those things, but he's very interested, as I said, in this and perfection, maturity, completing it, okay? So a whole bunch of these things. Okay, I'm going to move on, Catherine, on this because I've got a bunch of other stuff. Um, the, I'll give you a couple of quotes from history that might help you kind of glue all this together. Uh, John Calvin said, It is faith alone that saves. Do you know the rest of the quote? <laughs> but the faith that saves is never alone. That's pretty pithy. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. William Tyndale, the guy that I love, who is the reason we got an English Bible, um, he, I don't have his memorized, but he said something like this. He said, um, It is faith alone that justifies us before God, but it is our works that justifies us before the world. Okay? So here's, here's, look at what James says here. L- listen, this is what, what Tyndale is drawing from. In James 2, if you look at verse 19... Or verse eighteen, James says, uh, "I'll start at the top of the verse." Someone will say, "I have faith; you have deeds." And James says, "Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds." Down in verse twenty-two, he says, "You see that his faith and his actions were working together." In verse twenty-four, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That what James is, James is not talking about our standing before God. He knows that we are saved by faith alone. We are justified by God, by faith alone. But we are justified by the world, by what we do. And that's, so the rest of the New Testament really talks about much. James is mostly talking about the you see, you see, show me, I'll show you. The visible outward external manifestation of it. He's not contradicting. He's, he's not trying to contradict Romans 3. For one thing, Romans 3 hasn't been written yet. Okay? So sometimes people will act like as if James is like getting chippy with Paul. He's like, no, he's not. Paul isn't even a Christian when this is written. right? So give it a little bit of time. Okay? So it's going to play out. So that's how I think we would understand it. I think that the history of Luther is interesting, but I don't think we need to be. Uh, there are no straw epistles. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Groovy, groovy? Okay, now open it up for this giant pile of words. Here's what's going on here. This is, uh, let's see. James has at least two major, major sources for this letter. The first, and maybe the most obvious, is the Sermon on the Mount. So what I did is I went through the Sermon on the Mount, and I just pulled every line out of the Sermon on the Mount that James alludes to, everything that's in here. If you go through, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, or if you just read this, I mean, this is almost the entirety of it, for being honest. But if you just read the Sermon on the Mount, every verse here that I've pulled out is things that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to which James alludes in his letter. So largely, you can look at the book, the book of James as James's reflection on his brother's speech that he gave on that mountain. That's mostly what the letter is, okay? Huge amount of some amount of content shows up in here. And if you, if you just read through it and then you read James, you would be like, oh my gosh, Jesus just totally ripping off Jesus. He is, that's what he's doing, that's okay, okay? But you will also find, you could, you could have a very similar experience if you read the book of Proverbs and then read the book of James. And if you don't wanna take the whole time to read it all, just read this, I did the same thing. I went through Proverbs and I pulled out every line in Proverbs that James alludes to and there was way too much, so I went back and I, cut a bunch so they'd fit on the page okay so there's even more than what is here but if you read through all of these proverbs and then you read james you're gonna be like man that dude was like in the book of proverbs and he really was so james you could understand this letter therefore as this weaving in of the things that jesus talked about on the sermon on the mount the things that mostly solomon but some others talked about in the book of proverbs shake and stir put it in a letter that's the book of james that's what you get okay So that might be an interesting exercise for you this week. Go through and read one, and then you know, just do the Sermon on the Mount, and then read James. Just do the Proverbs, and then read James, and you'll see. Man, he's like all over the place. He's pulling these things in. Okay. Yes. So is he? So is James basically challenging um, the Bible? no, uh, challenging. It. No, I'd say he's affirming it and qu- he's quoting it. So he's never saying, "Look at what these guys said, and that's not true." This is. He's rather drawing this and saying, "Look at what Jesus said. Now get on it. Look at what the proverbs say. We should do this." So he's he's never quoting it in a way to contradict it. He's always quoting it in a way. He, he's not even so. Sometimes Jesus will do like you have heard it said, but I say to you, and there, there is some sense that he's not challenging the text, but he's challenging our understanding of the text. James doesn't even do that. He just simply says, this is what Jesus said, so let's, let's go. It's not really, he's not, he's not challenging or contradicting it. Is that cool? Okay, good. Other questions? Any of that? Okay. Then here is where we'll spend our last few minutes, because this is, this is weird. If you, you can read a bunch of commentaries on the book of James, and you can try it all by yourself, sit down with a piece of paper and try to figure out, okay, what is the flow of argument here? What is the, you know, how do, I, how do I find Romans in James? How do I find like a progression of thought in James? How does it go? This thought leads to this thought, leads to this thought. And you'll probably just go insane. Because it's just not there. It just isn't. James has a stream of consciousness to it. James has, depending on how you cut it, about a dozen little mini speeches. About a dozen little mini sermons. And frankly, they're just jammed in there. I've read a bunch of people attempting to like, come up with a coherent like, organizing principle. And I think they're all making it up. I just don't think it's there. Now, maybe it's there and I just can't see it. Maybe you can see it and I can't. But I have not found a, a, an obvious sense of like, oh, here's the flow. But what you will find, and I think, this, I think this is genuinely present. I would not have seen it, but I think it's actually true, is that James chapter 1 is the table of contents for the book of James. And so what, I tra- what I'm tra- attempting to show you here, if you go to the very back page, you want to kind of like unpack this and look at this. What you have there in the center is just straight up James chapter one. Just honest, I didn't do anything to it. It's just James chapter one. But then I put in on the sides here, these are all the little mini speeches that he gives. So what do I have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 11. Okay, a dozen little mini speeches. Those boxes represent the entirety of chapters two through five. Every one of those chunks is like, this is what he did, but I didn't put them in order like a normal person would put them. It's chapter five, then two, then five, then five, then two, you know, it's just weird. And it's because I put them in the order that they appear in the first chapter. Everything he talks about in the book has its root and origin in chapter one, okay? So if you look here, you'll see it just says, um, we want you to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He's talking about salvation. That's the goal of our salvation is that this whole thing would come to pass. Or you see when he's talking about wisdom, well, that corresponds to his section on wisdom. Or you see when he's talking about humble circumstances and um, and wealthy circumstances, he's going to unpack that in his whole passage on favoritism. Don't treat the rich different than you treat the poor. Of course, he does a whole section on wealth corresponding to the rich man. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. He double clicks on that and has a whole section on patient endurance. Endurance. He draws from all kinds of Old Testament stories and and what God does. He has a section here in chapter 1 about temptation, which he unpacks in chapter 4. He talks about God's kind gifts that he flows, that he gives to us, which links to his section on prayer as we come to the Lord and ask him for good gifts, especially when we're in desperate situations. Chapter 1, he talks about anger, which corresponds to his section about how we fight, go after each other, and quarrel with one another. He talks about here in chapter 1, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Do it. What you do matters. And that one's not that hard to see. What does that correspond to? That's the whole faith without deeds is dead. That Everything he's doing, the controversy of chapter 2 is all teed up there in chapter 1. And then finally, he ends chapter 1 about talking about his tongue. And then they, there's actually three different sections where he deals with our speech, right? In chapter 3, he's going to talk about it. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about it. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about it. Which I do, I do think suggests that in particular, James is very interested in how we use our mouth. How do we use our tongue? He gives a, he gives a lot of ink to that whole thing. But if you do this, so you might, you might read through James in a few different ways. Okay, you might read through it. First, I'm going to read the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to go look for that in the letter. You'll find it a lot. You could go read all of Proverbs or at least the passages that I excised for you. And then read Be like, man, he's really drawing from this. Or you could do this. You could read chapter 1 and then go hunt for all of these ideas in the book. You can do it with this as a guide or you can just do it all by yourself and then use this as an answer key, whatever you want. But, you, but I promise you, you will find that you could draw lines out of chapter 1 to chapter two, three, four, 3, 4, and 5. It's just, it just permeates the book. Okay, it's all over the place. So if there, which is to say, if there's an organizing principle, I may have missed a lot of it, okay? Because it just seems a little scattery to me. That might be because I have a high need for organization, right? Like I, my mind likes things all lined up. And maybe, maybe the, those of you that are, I am a high J, Right? I, I, I like things all tight. Um, maybe those of you that are more intuitive and dancey can find something that I'm just incapable of seeing. If so, praise the name. But what I do think is there is chapter one just permeates the book. So you can you go through and look at that, okay? If you do those th- th- three things, James through the, chapter one, James through the Sermon on the Mount, James through Proverbs, I think that'll at the very least help you to kind of follow what he's saying. And then here's the trick. Then you're all done and you're so smart because you understand the book of James, at which point James says, No, dummy. I didn't want you to be smarter about stuff. It's not a trivia game. Do what it says, right? You might quote something about the tongue, but do you control your tongue? You might memorize some phrase about favoritism, but do you actually show favoritism? So at the end of the day, when you're all done getting smart, just ask the question, am I, is it mattering? Am I moving to maturity, completion, perfection? Because that's what the letter was really all about. Groovy? Okay, questions about James. I, don't, I kind of, I've talked too fast, so i got five minutes. I never have five minutes. So, Fetzer. It's not a question, but just an nod. Yeah. If there's any consolation in the, in the first chapter, how it pops out, all these things, he does start with the thing that he ends with, though, which is nice. Yeah. Meaning being mature? Is that what you mean? Salvation. Oh, yeah, salvation. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like he ends the book with that. Yes. The book with that, ends the book with that, so. Yeah. That's true. That's hard. That, that he begins, it's kind of like he's, he's a good Covey guy, right? He's beginning with the end in mind. And then when the whole thing is done, it, it does have this, see, you could read James and just see he's just so chippy and he's so like, hey, 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 stop it. Like tighten up, right? And that does pervade. But he's going to talk about mercy. He's going to talk about compassion. And the very end of the book is, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's his desired end. The goal is that we would flourish in his grace, be mature, be complete. So, yeah, he brings it all around. It's a great great observation. Okay, James, what else we got? Questions? Harrison. Is is what you're saying that, like, the whole uh, Luther controversy about faith and works and, you know, like that stuff that people haven't stopped arguing about, is that all hanging on what, like, the fact that James means justify, as in to show righteous, like the way we normally use the word justify, like, oh, I'm justified by blah, blah, blah. means, oh, I was shown like to be correct. But the special Christian Paul used is made to be correct. Is that the whole, like, if yeah. everybody understood that, would this just all clear up? Is that the whole, like, crux of uh, Harrison, I think that is the crux of it. I think that what James is saying is is all those words that are visual, show me. You see, look at it. He is absolutely doing what, again, what, what Tyndale said is, the you're justified before the world by what you do. Duh, like obviously this is the case. That is the controversy. And I think that's, I think when, once that falls into a place, you're like, oh, that's what he's saying. And then we, we move on our merry way. He is not using the word justify the way Paul uses justify throughout Romans. It's a completely different sense of the term. He is not in a fight with, James, with, with Paul. Absolutely, that, that's the issue there. Now, having said that, then you could then be like, yeah, but man, it would have been helpful if James said something, anything, about the crucifixion of Jesus, which he doesn't do. When you go, you know, you go through James, you never, there's no language in the book of James that says Christ died for our sins, taking upon himself the wrath of God for our, you know, like things that Peter says, the things that Paul, Paul says a thousand times that Peter says, that Hebrews says, um, that other New Testament authors focus on, it is, it's just literally absent in the book of James. And that's probably contributes to certainly Luther's and perhaps other's sense of like, well, what are you saying here? Because you're not, you're not drawing to the fore the reality of all that we have in Christ. You are saying that he's merciful. You are saying that he saves us, but there's, there's just no cross in the book. And, so, and we tend to, reasonably so, we tend to take an awful lot of reassurance from the fact that Christ died for us Took on my culpability, offers me his life. And James, that, J, it's not James's purpose to discuss that, but we, I think we feel the absence of it. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Okay, cool. All right, is this going to be the only time in human history that this class ends early? We good? James, James, okay, drag us out. Somewhere that um, James didn't believe his brother was Christ until after the death. So, up uh, to the crucifixion, he wasn't. In Okay, so uh, as near as we understand, for if you read the Synoptic Gospels, James early on, in fact relatively late in the game, didn't believe that Jesus... Remember, they didn't, Jesus' family didn't think that he was the Messiah, right? And so there's this whole scene where like the brothers all come and, uh, and, and they're, like, they're basically accusing Jesus of being out of his mind. It appears that at that time, James, neither James nor Jude were followers of Christ which is a funny thing. On the one hand, you would think, man, you grew up in the house with him. Did you ever notice that he was a little different? Right, right? But on the other hand, what would it take to convince you that your brother is God? You know, like, would that be difficult? I think, so they had such an unusual, outrageous vantage point on him. And we have precious little data about when the penny drops for them. But James and Jude both—they, I mean—they become leaders in the church, contributors to Scripture. James, in particular, has an enormously significant role. But we don't—we don't have an insight into when did when did he go from James the grumpy brother to James the follower of Christ. We don't know, but certainly he didn't begin that way, for sure. Which is strange. Yeah, Dan. Uh, could be since you were saying that James's target was talking to Christian Jews that. These guys, ladies, were so wrapped up in Jewish law and knowing the law and not really practicing what the law was teaching that he's sort of wrapping it up and saying, you know, faith is not another law for you to focus on. Take your faith and you get to work. Yeah, well, I mean, it, absolutely the case. They, they are to Live, James wants them to live in faith, He wants them to live it out. Um, he, he understands prop, a proper understanding of the law is not that we would disregard it, right? We, we've done this we, we did like we talked about the Ten Commandments in here. The purpose of the law is to show us, and I think James would absolutely affirm this. It shows us how much we are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring its curse in our stead and for our good. which would stir up in us thankfulness, gratitude appreciation for all that he's done which we would seek to express by obedience to that same law right that is the proper, you look at the law you're like I can't do that you realize Jesus did do that your heart is flooded with appreciation that he did it for you in your place That he suffered his curse for you in your place filled with love and admiration and affection and gratitude you say what can I do to say thank you answer, no. obey and that's really ultimately what, what James is saying here. At the end of the day, is we demonstrate our appreciation, and our love for Christ as we yield our lives to Him. Same thing Paul says. Same thing Peter says. It is a consistent message. But he is quite admittedly not unpacking the engine of how that works. It's not. That's what Paul is going to do. That's what others are going to do. That's not what he's trying to do. But his message fits into that same overall purpose. That is the role of the law in the life of a believer. Oh, funny bone. Okay, good enough. Okay, one more. One more on the way back. Hang on, one more on the way back. I can yes. I to defend Martin Luther a little bit by setting the context of the timing here. For sure. I see Martin Luther say that. He says that because the Roman Catholic Church is so aired away from faith. Absolutely. From and into salvation by works. And so Martin Luther is trying to do a massive force correction back to the point of the gospel absolutely completely fair and that he has a very good reason to be particularly strong that we're saved by faith alone his cultural moment is very significant for sure for sure okay that's all for James read it through those lenses enjoy we'll see you next week